Welcome back to another NFT scam. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Stienekamp, objectively the most handsome host that any podcast has ever had. Right. The NFT will not feature my face. Uh, my name's Kristen. Not. Yeah, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Today, we are... We're still surfs up, by the way. Oh, yes. Yeah. We are still right. surfs up, continuing to surfing. be that. And today we are discussing another political book, also quite overtly political, just like in our last episode when we talked about uh, The Iron Heel by Jack London. Although this book is arguably on the opposite side of the political spectrum. It's much mm-hmm. more right-wing, it's much more militaristic and hierarchical, well, pro-hierarchy. The book in question being, drumroll please. Uh, is there a drummer here? Oh, <laughs> I think I'm a drummer, yeah. <laughs> a Starship Troopers by yeah. Robert A. Heinlein. Yeah, we, we almost fell off the cliff last week. We were so far left. Uh, we <laughs> wanted to restore some balance to this thing. All um, our dear listeners will appreciate these efforts. Well, the author connects in a very sidelong kind of six degrees of separation way to the Iron Heel because Robert A. Heinlein actually worked for Upton Sinclair's bid for office Okay, when Heinlein was still a left-winger early on in his life. And Upton Sinclair obviously was in the same circle as jack london yeah and they had some correspondence so in that way there is this if you if you stretch it a bit you can say this book is connected to the previous book and we're running a theme and we know what we're doing and we're on top of it gorgeous segue (laughs) yeah we almost it's almost like we thought that out And um, we are not alone. We are not alone. For today's episode, we are joined by a friend of the show and professional feelings about Heinlein haver. Longtime listener. Carmen Cita Ibanez, which is totally her real name. Hi, you can call me Carmen. It's, hi, Carmen. Hi. It's the only <laughs> named female character in this book, so we thought it was appropriate. It's going to be the most appropriate thing about this podcast. <laughs> Probably. Uh, so tell us a bit about your background. I'm an avid reader. I think mm. that is probably the most interesting thing about me for this podcast. Mm. Um, yeah. How many books have you logged on Goodreads? It's over a thousand, right? 1600 something. Fuck me. <laughs> um, wow. that's, I started keeping track in 2007 before okay. Goodreads existed. This makes me sound like such a nerd. Oh, but there used to be this other website called Shelfari, and I started using Shelfari in 2007, and I had the policy of only logging what I was reading. Like, right. I didn't want to go back in time and be like, well, when I was nine, like, mm-hmm. it was only what I was reading as I've read it. So since 2007, like, I don't know. What, uh, what draws you to reading? Well, I will answer that honestly, which is like any child with a traumatic childhood, you find yeah. some way to escape. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> any person escape, knows. Engagement with yeah. Uh, yeah. ideas. And... Yeah. So I definitely have my own name that mm-hmm. I go by is actually a reference to a fantasy novel. Okay. So the nerd blood runs deep, let's say. Deep. Uh, d- very much love fantasy sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of sci-fi. 
But these days, I mostly read history, philosophy, and politics. Mm -hmm. um, although YA novels will always have a special place in my heart. <laughs> and this, uh, it should be said, this book is now sort of classified as a YA novel, right? Yes. And originally it was published as one. Yes. As a serial in some magazine. I can't remember the You get the it title. in a box of cereal? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Those lucky kids. <laughs> I want to join the military now. <laughs> Thanks, Captain Crunch. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, tell us about your academic interests or background. Or So I guess professionally, uh, I was originally a language major. I studied Japanese in college. Um, I specialized in Japanese. Uh, my degree is in technical and professional writing with a specialization in Japanese. And I came to Korea originally as a scholarship student to study Korean. So um, my primary interest academically is actually the Japanese colonial period of Korea. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot I could say about the American military in terms and how that plays into the formation of both Korea and Japan as modern nation states. But that's a whole other topic okay. for this book. Yeah. Um, my primary interest in this book is definitely like I've read a lot of Heinlein. I think this mm -hmm. is like my sixth book. Okay. And I'm mostly interested, and by that mean, I mean passionately hate his uh, gender, his how he views gender, the male gender, uh, both, his gender. both, both gender, <laughs> how he views his discussion of both masculinity and femininity is pretty mm. horrible to me. Um, so in this book, in I will definitely come across as I have strong opinions about this man and I loathe him. So okay. <laughs> I right bring, out front about that. I bring, yes, I bring all of my experiences as a human lady yeah. in this world to say, I hate this man and everything he stands for. Spoiler so, alert. <laughs> so I would say my academic background is I'm a human person and I experience things and Heinlein apparently isn't. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start by talking about some of the historical context to set the stage for Heinlein's book and the time that it was written in. This was, of course, the Cold War period in the mm. 1950s. The book was published in 1959. We should mainly be talking about uh, the end of World War II and the economic boom that was happening, especially in the United States, it emerged relatively unscathed from the war on the national front and had a lot of money, big wartime industry built up, consolidating its power. Other nations in Europe were destroyed, more or less, and trying to deal with decolonizing efforts around the world. Uh, the U.S. is spearheading this new international order. The United Nations is just getting started. In this time, we see tensions between Russia and, and the United States, Soviet Russia. Mm. And under the Marshall Plan, the United States gave huge amounts of aid to Western Europe to pull them into the Western sphere, while the Iron Curtain, as Churchill said, was coming down over Eastern nations. And then in 1950, we have the Korean War, which is backed by Soviet Union and China at the time. Mm. And mm. so it's sort of a proxy war. So then Eisenhower becomes president in 1953, and he says, Forces of good and evil are massed and armed and opposed as rarely before in history. Freedom is pitted against slavery, lightness against dark. Wow. This that... is very Monarchian construction of a polar dual yeah. forces that cannot be resolved outside that, of force. That sounds like something out of Star Wars, you know. We must, we must fight the Sith. 
Yes. So there's a continuation of American high foreign policy in this regard. Uh, 1953, the CIA leads coups against uh, Iran and Guatemala. So there's proxy wars going on. Uh, 1956, there's the Hungarian revolt, which the United States does not uh, intervene in. And then at this time, the U.S. is also sending military aid to Vietnam because the French are getting their butts kicked. Those are some important things to say about the Cold War. Mm. Any questions? No, but Mm -hmm. I have a lot to chime in on I bet later. you do. I bet you <laughs> do. There's so much to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, hold on. Is any of this going to be on the test later? No. No? No. Okay, but so I will can zone off and... and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've talked about the post-World War II economic boom. Uh, along with that came the baby boom in the United States. Mm. A record number of babies were born in the United States. About 4 million babies were born each year during the 1950s. Wow, they did a lot of screwing. They screwed things up, (laughs) big time. By 1964, there were almost 77 million baby boomers. There's an Mm. era of convenience and affluence that gives people confidence in having children. Mm. Mm. Gross national product more than doubles, growing from 200 billion to more than 500 billion. Lower unemployment, lower inflation, higher wages, taxes on corporations still relatively high. So all these things are contributing the United States to affluence, at least for uh, mainstream America. Mm, we, we're, mm. we're not considering class or gender and race. Yeah, please, let's not, because that's a whole <laughs> other rabbit hole. Right. <laughs> uh, government spending on interstate highways, schools, veteran benefits, military spending and technology is really hot at this moment. The GI Bill subsidized low-cost mortgages for new cheaper suburban homes. So returning vets have the comfort of being taken care of, unlike earlier vets in U.S. history who had to mm. march on Washington. World War I veterans, for example, the Bonus Army in 1930s during the Great Depression, mm. the Revolutionary War, people had to come and just storm the White House. So obviously this didn't benefit everyone. Yeah. Uh, there was the 1954 decision, uh, Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Education, that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. So this begins the process of trying to integrate school systems. And education is foundational for freedom and democracy, I think. Actually, don't think I agree with the idea that education necessarily leads to a more progressive society. But that Mm. is a whole other long conversation about... Can we say it's necessary but not sufficient? Sure. Well, that depends on what you mean by educated. Right, right, right. Doesn't it? Uh, In reaction to this decision by the Supreme Court and schools being integrated, efforts for this by the federal government, uh, whites are resisting white communities. They're they're sending their children to white academies. They're using violence and intimidation to resist these things. And Southern congressmen are uniting in Mm. protest. So this is really setting the stage for the civil rights movement. 1955, Rosa Parks and Montgomery gets on the bus and refuses to go to the back. And that really sparks what everybody knows to be the nonviolent resistance movement of the civil rights era and Martin Luther King and so forth, largely organized through communities and churches and great speeches and things. And so we've talked about the civil rights. At the same time, I think everybody's heard of the Red Scare, Mm. this uh, crusade against communism. Between 1945 and 1952, Congress held 84 hearings to end un-American activities in the federal government, universities and schools, and Hollywood. 
And this is also an attack on labor unions. There's pinkos everywhere. The hype is real for you know, people. Palpable. Ronald Reagan actually testified at one of those hearings, ratting on some other celebrities, some other actors. Wonderful. He, yeah. yeah. Culturally, we, we see televisions all over the place, the expansion of all kinds of media, 1950s. There are 4.4 million people who own one TV in their home. Mm. So expansion of messages, expansion of roads, things are getting really connected. Especially the world in the is US. becoming smaller. Yeah. It, art, there's abstract expressionism, uh, pop art. These things are thriving, rock and roll, rockabilly. Uh, youth, youth are targeted for music now in a new, in a new way. It's really mm. taking off. Yeah, uh, the idea of the, of the teenager as a consumer mm -hmm. really comes from this era. Right. There is a book that I passionately, passionately love and would highly recommend all of our dear readers to check out. It's called Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating by Moira Wagle. 1950s is when dating really became a thing. Mm. Before that, dating didn't really exist. And I actually kind of think this sort of thing, like, really, because Heinlein has very clear opinions about gender. We can talk about this more later, but he was actually incredibly open-minded. He was a proponent of free love before free love was even a movement. Like, he was very, 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 like liberal and open-minded about sex. Uh, he really strongly about removing fear, like women not having fear about being sexual beings. And so in this context, like dating only really became a thing in the 50s. Like The Labor of Love, this book, talks about the evolution of dating in America. And it starts in the late 1800s with women becoming shop girls. So they're finally out of their house for the first time. But people still mostly lived with their families. So you couldn't go to each other's houses to like meet. You had to go out. And part of dating was being seen. So there's this whole like social thing that we don't, when we think about dating, we don't really think of it as like a social climbing thing. It's also a car culture there is some cars are becoming a, a yeah. So you have a place a bigger to go. and bigger part of right. So that. going out and being alone without That's your right. parents, and so I feel like there's a lot of this 1950s. There's like yeah, there's the TVs in the home. Women had only in 1948. That was the first year that women were officially allowed to join the military in America. So there's a lot actually going on. This is a time period where feminism didn't exist, right? Like literally, the word didn't exist. 19, the feminine mystique came out in 1963. So when you're when you're placing Heinlein in a context. It's like a very militarized time. It's a very anti-communist time. And it's a time in which women are being pushed back into the home because they just started to come out of the home right. in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And so yes. now in the 1950s, they're going back. And so I think some of that, when he's talking about, when he talks about experiences and what experiences he values in his books, I think this context kind of matters. It does matter, absolutely. I wanted to summarize some of these things in Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961. This is two years after the book is published, but Eisenhower is president for eight years during all of this time. So he saw from a high perch what was happening in society. And yes. we may not agree with all the things that Eisenhower says, but his speech is, is very famous and important. He says... Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among people and among nations. I think we can all agree that that is 100% correct. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I can, you know, as you were reading that, all I could imagine was like 
Eisenhower masturbating furiously. <laughs> God. <laughs> when you say we can all agree that's true, how tongue in cheek are you being? Or how serious are you being? Very sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, he goes on to say, progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Ooh, the dark side of the force is coming for your children. So it's a totalizing existential threat, mm. and it must be met directly. We are fighting Satan himself. Right. We're going to see this in the book, so stay tuned. Mm. Okay, then he says, A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Ooh, our ding, arms ding. must be mighty ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. So this is, Korea ended in 1953. That's a pretty impressive statement mm. if you consider it eight years later. He's talking about this existential threat and the organization of military not resembling what it was before. And now he's saying, but now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved, so is the very structure of our society. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's some heady stuff. You can feel the gravity. Mm. He's aware of the gravity of this, whether yeah. or not we agree with him as a person or his politics or his presidency. He is seeing something. And it's interesting how prescient that became because if you look at it historically, like as soon as the threat of communism ostensibly disappeared, all of a sudden, the threat of terrorism, of extremist Islam, just popped up. The system needs enemies. Okay, actually, here's the famous part of the quote. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. So note the emphasis on citizenry there. That will come back in, during the book. And uh, now I'll turn it over to uh, Eddie, who will give us a short biography of the author. So, Robert... 
A. Heinlein, Robert Anson Heinlein. He was born in 1907, which means he came of age during the Roaring Twenties and then witnessed the Great Depression. Um, He was born right as Iron Heel was being published. He was like one year old when the book book came out, so... He also actually in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. He, the main character of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, repeatedly refers to the authority as the Iron Heel. It's almost certain that he did, in fact, read the book because oh, cool. he yeah. was referencing it. Okay. Mm. Heinlein was born into a middle class family. His father was an accountant. So the Great Depression probably didn't hit him as hard as it did some people he wouldn't have been completely oblivious to it. Uh, He comes from not a military family in the sense that that his father was in the military during his childhood, but in the sense that all of the males in his lineage had served in the military all the way back to the war for independence. So Heinlein and his brother both served in the U.S. Navy. He didn't see combat experience, am I right? I don't think he did. He served from 1929 to 1934. I do think it's worth noting that he spends a good chunk of Starship Troopers dunking on the Navy. Yes. (laughs) It's actually kind of interesting that he served in the Navy when that's his punching bag for most of the book. Mm. Yeah. I think maybe he wishes he had served in the army or yeah in the army or the marines so grass but, is always greener but yeah he reached the the rank of lieutenant and he um was discharged due to pulmonary tuberculosis fun yeah he after he got out of the military He supported himself with several different things. He was an odd job man for a while, did some real estate here and some silver mining there. And he was active in Upton Sinclair's uh, bid for, for government in the early 1930s, which is... Interesting, I think, considering the political slant of Starship Troopers, because it's quite right-wing, and the bugs, the enemies, the aliens in this novel are very clearly a metaphor for communism. Yet, in his younger days, he worked with Upton Sinclair. Very progressive, muckraking... Socialist. socialist. I will constantly maintain this. I actually think he has some like fairly mainstream and actually like quite radical for the time liberal views in this book Mm, mm. um, that definitely counter traditionally conservative viewpoints like citizenship, how he defines citizenship is completely different than the way most Mm -hmm. right wing people would define citizenship. Yeah. And then he started writing in the late 1930s and was fairly successful fairly quickly he wrote under the editorship of john w campbell who was a very famous editor at the time for astounding science fiction magazine john w campbell famously wrote uh who goes there 
the short story that inspired um, John Carpenter's The Thing, which was recently expanded into a full novel because somebody found some of the original manuscripts for it. Yes, so John W. Campbell is this huge figure in early science fiction, and Robert A. Heinlein rubbed shoulders with him and worked with him, and eventually started publishing novels, which were very successful. Heinlein was a celebrity author, very much so. He he had, I believe, two marriages. The first didn't work out very well, and the second one worked very well for a very long time. Also, Jack London... Oh, yes. Jack London had a very similar uh, structure mm, to his marriage. Maybe he didn't live as long. Yeah, he had some very progressive views about things like race and social structuring. Like many of his books would feature quote-unquote non-standard read, non-white <laughs> characters as the protagonists. He would have... I don't know if he ever wrote a story with a woman as the main character. You could arguably say that Glory Road, it's it's from the perspective of a man, but mm. you could arguably say that Glory Road has a female main character. The driving narrative of that book is is by a woman. Which obviously in that time in the 1950s was quite progressive, fairly unheard of. And I definitely think it's really important to note that he's only progressive for his time. Yes. We can talk about this more later, but, you know, Johnny Rico is, as as you like to say, the big twist in, in Starship Troopers is that Johnny Rico is Filipino, Filipino but it's that also literally makes it like he's the definition of colorblind, right? Like yes. this is a person who, surprise, isn't actually white, but on purpose, nothing about the character would distinguish him as not white. He never ever talks about himself as having any experience that wouldn't immediately be completely simpatico to an average white person. So it's like mm. the definition of colorblind. It's diverse on the outside, but completely white on the inside. Yes, and that's yes. definitely not not problematic, not racist. You it's have just... to be aware of the problem and acknowledge it before you can pretend to get past it. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I just I just think putting him in the context of being very progressive for his time is really important. We shouldn't uh, anachronistically judge him. Yeah, he he would do that with, yeah, as you say, with skin color, but not necessarily with culture. Yeah, there's nothing Filipino about... Johnny Rico in Starship Troopers. Uh, not in the food he eats or anything like that, but you do get a lot of characters like, oh, here's a Japanese character. And it's interesting how he thinks about the aesthetics of a multicultural world, but not necessarily the actual implication. But yeah, uh, so Heinlein lived a very successful life a very had a very successful writing career yeah he was a member of the citizens advisory council on national space policy he helped develop uh reagan's famous star wars initiative oh, really? he, was a, he was a consultant on that so uh he was taken very seriously as as someone who has knowledge about 
space and about all of these. Did he study astronomy or anything like that in his any at any point in his career? Not formally. Mm. No, he was very interested in it. Um, due to Halley's Comet appearing when he was, I think, three years old in 1910. As far as I'm aware, he never really went to university right. for, for astronomy or anything like that. Um, so at this time, there was a big space race, and the, and Russia put their man in orbit first, and that was yes. a big... That was a big, uh-oh, we got to catch up. There's a space gap. The first mm. human-made object on the moon was in 1959. It was a Russian-made object, the year that yep. Starship Troopers right. comes out. So That's that, right. that year relevant. is, yeah. Sure. And okay. uh, he wrote Starship Troopers in just a few weeks. So it was very possible that uh, this man-made object was part of his inspiration. We but get another man-made object on the Earth. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, uh, then Heinlein dies in his sleep of emphysema in 1988. So he lived f 81 years, quite a long time. And he got he racked up some awards throughout his life and recognition for yes, his writing. Yes, he won a number of Hugo Awards and Nebula Awards. Um, I think we can segue to the to some of the stories. Uh, so, yeah. Carmen, would you like to share with us some of the stories that you've read and, and the highlights and the lowlights? And yeah. So let me. Yeah, I've read quite a number of his books. Dearest listener, please imagine a timeline in your brain as I'm speaking. So Starship Troopers was published in 1959. Obviously, that's the book we're talking about. His second most famous book, I believe, is Stranger in a Strange Land. That comes out in 1961. Glory Road, which was actually the first book by him that I read, came out in 1963. And I will say, I find it really interesting to read that book first without knowing anything about him because the entire book starts as very anti-military. Which and we he, can contrast with our current book. Right, which, which is a very efficient, very like well-oiled machine. And some people, when I started reading it, I thought this could be satire yeah. because I, hadn't, I had no knowledge of of him as an author or as a person or anything. I thought this is this is way too... When I first read Starship Troopers in high school, I assumed it must be satire. Mm -hmm. I thought it was because it's so over the top. And the thing is, when I read Glory Road, I also thought it was satire. I thought it was so, like, it's such a tongue-in-cheek mocking of the military. But then when later I read Starship Troopers, I was like, wait, was he not? Like, what the fuck's going on in Glory Road? Because it's <laughs> such a weird... It's yeah. hard to like mesh those two books together. He also published another incredibly influential book. I cannot emphasize how influential this book is. It's called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and it came out in 1966. Probably for you guys, it won't really ring as a very famous book, but both my grandfathers were engineers for NASA. This book just, it's like meeting my grandfather as a person. It's the book that popularized the phrase, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, which probably, it's not really that popular as a phrase anymore, but mm -hmm. for like engineers in the 60s, this is gospel. It means that you don't get anything life for free because things are Sacrifice, exchanged. which is a motif of this book. Yes. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, The Feminine Mystique came out in 1963, which I do think is really important because... Did he shadow write that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this book comes out like 
a decade before you could see women wearing pants, right? Like it's hard to think about, but it I always was actually... think of the '60s as mini skirts. Yeah, but, but this is after that. Well, a little yes, after, but at work, like women should dress like women, so yeah. women wore dresses. That's they right. wore high heels. They wore makeup, right. and if they didn't. They were fucking dykes, what and there was a problem the, uh, with them. Yeah, I hear everything you're saying. What about that image of Rosie the Riveter that was popular in World War II? Was that an exception? Because she came out... Well, I mean, that actually contributes a lot to the struggle of the 50s. First, in the 40s, this wasn't a thing women did, so they had to encourage women to go take, quote-unquote, masculine jobs. So they of, had to normalize right. it because the men were all gone. We can make were, an exception here, but right. then, okay, but then now afterwards, you need to move back you in. need to go back into yes. your house. And so then that becomes this tension right. because women had finally started to leave their home. Right. And they started to get this idea of, like, wait, it's possible for me to do things other than just change diapers all day. There's also, if I may mention, a job insecurity it goes mm. with women entering the workforce and blacks wanting to enter those jobs and keep those jobs that they had during the war. Mm. Mm. There's a lot of context that I think it's like really hard for us to remember. Mm-hmm. So birth control is not a common thing. Women were uh, drugged up, though, to stay happy in their households. Yeah, that was, was a big uh, thing. Well, that's definitely big. Loft or I forgot what the name of those were. but Yeah, it's yeah. that's yeah. a big part of the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And like that comes out in the feminine mystique. The housewives lament or whatever, which is basically like, this is where I actually think Heinlein and Betty Friedan actually have way more in common than I think you might immediately gather from the different aesthetics of their conversation. But both of them consistently normalize the idea of women working outside the home. Glory Road, the leader of the universe, galaxy, is a woman. This lady comes to the planet to find like her hero and there's millions of possibilities, but she gets this one dude and um, he has to go do some shit to give her the thing that will allow her to like take her position as the leader of the universe. And like Earth is like some backwoods nowhereville, but consistently like even still, in... Still the man was the one being the agent. Yes. Serving this kind of mother goddess who yeah. doesn't even sound real, frankly. No, I mean, there's actually so much yeah, about that book right. that I could... She literally gets masculine personalities implanted into her that will counteract her... Ooh, and she nice. takes like a hormone blocker to block her hormones. So she doesn't have like all those crazy hormones impacting right. her judgment. Right. You know, like it's like... and like She that's, can play chess. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like... She knows math. Right. So he's creating these fictional worlds... And a really big part of his of his worlds in all of his books are that women can be sexually empowered beings. When society stops judging them, they will take control of their sexual desires and that they can and will initiate that they will become sexual beings who are connected to their passions. And that through having jobs, through like throwing off these social conventions, they'll be more fulfilled people and fulfilling people. There's this idea in... Heinlein's books that liberation is doing a masculine thing. It's going Mm. to join the military. It's going to do something that men do. It's going to like, when you're free, you can act like the men too. Like, open your mind, open your legs. Everyone will be happy. Did he give good orgasms? I, I, I suspect there was probably an orgasm gap in his relationship, but I can't speak from experience. So, yeah, Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I think that. If you remove like the 1950s dad talk, like in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, he talks about women undulating down corridors and he's like, oh, there's, you've never seen a woman move like a loony woman can move because gravity on the moon is six times 
weaker than on earth. And so you've never seen a woman undulate the way you've seen a, and it's just like, ugh, like it's just, let me vomit into my lap. It's so disgusting. But when you remove the 1950s dad, like aesthetic, he's actually not that far off from most mainstream feminists. Most mainstream feminists are still out there being like, slut walks, let's get those ladies, like let's, let's normalize women having sex. The way relationship balance happens is when relationships are equal in this particular way and that equality means women normalizing and embodying masculine traits masculine roles masculine desires and you know who benefits from that men even when you remove the aesthetics even when you remove the 1950s dad talk and you actually get down to his core ideals the bedrock of his actual philosophy you'll find it's really problematic it might be radical for the 50s but let's leave it in the past (laughs) Let's, let's, let's not yeah. still act like this is an awesome thing to do or be. So let's move on to the reason we're all here, the book itself. So just one last piece of context that I would like to mention is that um, this book was written in response to a full-page ad that Heinlein saw in a newspaper calling for the end to nuclear testing by the US. Heinlein saw that, abandoned what would later become Stranger in a Strange Land, and wrote Starship Troopers in a few weeks. So it's very much an argument for why the US needs a strong military. He wrote it deliberately with that in mind. So the book has no real plot to speak of, and this section will be notably very different from the same section in our previous episode, because there's much less going on. It barely has a plot, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So the book basically follows the character Juan Rico, His parents call him Juanito, but everybody else calls him Johnny. It follows him through his military career. He joins up with the military in the second chapter, and by the end, he's a lieutenant in charge of his own You say lieutenant? I say lieutenant. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's because you speak the wrong English. (laughs) Enough. But yeah, and then interspersed with the scenes of boot camp and... You uh, you like boots, so... I do like you're boots. You're definitely into that I section. I don't like camping, though. Okay. So well, I like camping. It's, a, it's got something for everybody. So between the two of us. <laughs> um, interspersed between the, the scenes of boot camp and officers training and some scenes of combat but actually very few surprisingly few you get these conversations that Rico has with well some of them are flashbacks to conversations he had with his high school teacher and some of them are conversations between officers that Rico overhears some of them are conversations with his drill sergeant things like that Um, and all of these conversations just serve the purpose to expand on the universe 
and to explore Heinlein's political ideas. So, in this universe, there, uh, there's a distinction made between citizens and civilians. The main difference, politically, is that a civilian cannot vote. Uh, you have to earn your franchise through military service. Now, Heinlein has stated in his expanded universe writings that in this universe, many people earn their franchise through non-military civil service, but that's immaterial. He could have chosen any platform for this novel. He mm -hmm. chose war. Right. And then it should be mentioned that in order to become a citizen... One has to enter the military and be honorably discharged. Yes. And it, yes. At, every, at every instance, the military is trying to push people out, trying yes. to discourage people. We don't, we don't really need you. Get out of here. And it's only those who overcome all of that at the end. And they try to discourage you from joining, too. Yes. yes. There's a mandatory class in high school called... Um, history and moral philosophy. Yeah, and the entire class, it's mandatory, but you don't have to pass it. And then the teacher spends the entire class trying to tell you you're not good enough to join. Mm. So the entire thing sets it up as a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. It's strange because it's a Bildungsroman coming-of-age story, but without the character development that that would imply. Like Johnny Rico, I think you met, you called him a paper cutout mm -hmm. once in a, in a private conversation. He has no opinions. Like he's an empty vessel for other people to pour their ideas into. And he doesn't even like digest them and spit them back out. The only thing he does is repeat the words of other people around him. Yes. He never has his own idea once in the entire book. And a lot of the book is dedicated to explaining military hierarchy and... Insignia, military maneuvers on an imaginary planet with imaginary enemies. The enemies here are also an important part of the themes and the philosophy of the book because they are fighting what they call pseudo-arachnid aliens. Bugs. They're exterminators. Mm -hmm. And the bugs are a very clear metaphor for communism. There's a passage in the book where he refers to the bugs organization or social organization as a total communism. Uh, it's, a, it's probably similar to a hive mind in some ways where you have the brain bugs delegating to the soldier bugs. There's three bugs that are talked about. The queen... The workers. The warriors and the workers. And uh, I'd like to read some, some quotes here to illustrate some of what's going on here in this book. This first one is about the philosophy of militarism. This is their drill instructor during the first basic training. When a soldier asks him, why are they fighting? And... The drill instructor, Sergeant Zim, responds with this lengthy monologue, and a part of that goes like this. It's never a soldier's business to decide when or where or how or why he fights. That belongs to the statesmen and the generals. The statesmen decide why and how much. The generals take it from there and tell us where and when and how. We supply the violence. Other people, older and wiser heads, as they say, 
supply the control, which is as it should be. He later says that civilians probably know more about what's happening than, than they do. Yes, yes, because they are outside of it and they can follow the, the mm-hmm. broader trends of the war, whereas the soldiers are on the ground. And I believe a quote like this summarizes fairly well that right-wing idea of hierarchy is both natural and good. Well, you can't have a military structure where people are questioning orders. If you accept the premise that we need a military, then you, you have to have that. Yes. And there may be circumstances where that's warranted. The book certainly appeals more towards people who are in the military and already accept the logic of chain of command and say this is how it is. Mm, but as mm. civilians, we don't see that as a model that can work in any other kind of society. And if it's applied yes. too widely, it becomes problematic. Well, that's the thing that in this society, in the society of the novel, it is at least partially applied to the rest of society as well, with the military veterans being the only ones with any kind of control. And what is the supreme leader's name, his Uh, title? The Sky Marshal. This is a top-down military-controlled society that has come about through great wars happening on the earth and great disruptions. And finally, the military leaders step up and say, look, we've got this. Mm. Sit down. Could you read the quote about citizenship? So the quote is this. To vote is to wield authority. It is the supreme authority from which all other authority derives, such as mine to make your lives miserable once a day. Force, if you will. The franchise is force, naked and raw, the power of the rods and the axe. Whether it is exerted by ten men or ten billion, political authority is force. I actually think that that's a really thought-provoking quote for people to consider, because at least in the United States, people are encouraged to believe that voting is like democracy, which in the United States is completely inseparable from capitalism, but it's the most authentic, it's the most fair, it's the most just form of government that could possibly exist. But I don't think anyone would overtly consider the right to vote as a power they can wield over other people. When you Mm -hmm. put it like that, it sounds really negative, but that's not the way we talk about it. Well, it's an inalienable right. It's an inalienable right. Guaranteed by birth. There's no test. At least in his... anymore. (laughs) In his time, that was... The language, of course, showing up at a poll booth is no guarantee that you're going to be able to vote, especially now there's all kinds of restrictions and loopholes and things that are restricting those votes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll tip my hand a little bit. The idea of exerting force over another person, and if you truly believe that that's what voting is doing, is not voting a moral quandary for you. Most people would not make that connection, um, but there's actually a really good pamphlet. I'm going to put a plug for the pamphlet of Debunking Democracy by Bob Black. And I would highly recommend reading it if you really want to consider the notion of voting. Heinlein considers it as a powerful force, which he clearly believes in. And he goes on to say that the only people who should be allowed to do that are people who are willing to put their life on the line for this power. Like he explicitly says, Mm. this is why we have a military structure, because if you're not willing to put your body where your mouth is, you shouldn't be voting. With only... A select group of voters, every vote becomes far more important and Mm. powerful. So if voting is distributed, then the power of each vote becomes less. 
Yes, that's true. It becomes diluted mm-hmm. almost. So like in the firing squad, when you only give one person the gun, the only one person gets the bullet, but no one knows who has the bullet. It's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So the power of your vote is diluted because no one knows whose choice really impacts someone else. Mm. This isn't exactly relevant, but in the training, one out of every 500 rounds is was a live a round. Live round. And it was to give the impression that, hey, this is serious. Somebody could get hurt. And we should be more explicit about what uh, some of the military he was in. Was it the mech infantry? or The mobile Mobile infantry. infantry. Yes. These are the grunts of the army, right? As he yes. joins up and everyone is discouraging him, saying, hey, this <laughs> this isn't for sissies. Mm-hmm. And it gets harder and harder. And, and, and only an elite few are left. And they are going to be put into these massive mech body armor suits and dropped out of space Mm. through an atmosphere at bullet speed and land on a planet, guns firing in these suits, which are impressive to say the least. Yeah, uh, this book was actually hugely influential in popularizing the idea of the space marine Mm -hmm. and powered mech armor. It created a whole category of sci-fi. This was at a time, too, when the Russians and the Americans were experimenting in different types of spacesuits and really developing that. So this is an imagination of where that could go. Yeah. So one last quote I would like to read from the book, which I thought was a very interesting take on the idea of morality. This is from the officer's school, where Rico is is a cadet learning how to become an officer. Morals. All correct moral rules derive from the instinct to survive. Moral behavior is survival behavior above the individual level, as in a father who dies to save his children. I just find that take very interesting because it shows that Heinlein doesn't think very highly of the average person. I mean, there are many other quotes which show a very similar thing. He was a bit Nietzschean in that regard, that he didn't really view the average person as being capable of very much. The The civilian in this book is, yeah, is, well, in many ways, a second-class citizen. And I just think it's it's interesting that he points to the survival instinct as the only true morality because i completely disagree with that i believe it's not only possible but actually quite moral to override your instinct for survival in many circumstances we have the instinct to protect others close to us and mm. Putting your ethics, grounding them in some uh, natural premise is always a dangerous thing to do Mm. because it it seems to remove it from the assumptions being made. Yes. Right. And we do have competing instincts, it seems. It's not nearly as clear cut as this is obviously saying. I I also wanted to say you're talking about, you know, the father sacrificing. Uh, Initially, his father's dead set against him joining the military the military he's a businessman he says hey just go take a vacation i'll I'll give you part of the business don't worry about it you know and then Mm. later his dad comes around and he joins it's like what the heck my dad's here and so then he has this conversation with his father and his father says uh, i had to perform an act of faith i had to prove to myself that i was a man 
not just a producing, consuming economic animal, but a man. Mm. So he's giving his rationale for why he had to join. And then just a moment later, he only has this a few minutes to talk to his dad before his dad heads off, right? And he, he says, take care of yourself, son, and hit those exams, or you'll find you're still not too big to paddle. And he says, I will, father. <laughs> and that's about the depth of it. Corporal yeah. punishment, by the way, is normalized everywhere. Yeah. It's normalized oh, yes. in school. Right. And in fact, they have all these they have all these conversations about like how horribly barbaric can you imagine living in a world where people aren't paddled or whipped? Right. Right. Like, oh my God, like what kind of like barbaric, crazy society would that be? Right. Uh, they mm. had these pre-scientific pseudo-philosopher psychologists going around telling kids, you know, we need to talk about our feelings. And, and he was dead set against that. Yeah. yeah. So do with that what you will. So I'm going to ask you guys both a question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest complaints about this book, right, is that it's super fascist. It's really fashy. <gasps> so Gasp. I know. So what are your definitions of fascism? I can start by reading from Oxford a short history, and this one's on fascism. It says, fascism is a set of ideologies and practices that seeks to place the nation, defined in exclusive biological, cultural, and or historical terms, above all other sources of loyalty and to create a mobilized national community. And it goes on, basically, this book is saying fascism is incredibly hard to define and pin down. We can, mm. we can mainly say that it was a movement between World War I and World War II that really came to life in Italy and Germany as a kind of phoenix rising out of the ashes, trying to reclaim their rightful identity as nation states and seeing other threats as existential and subsuming the individual to the state and there's a component of leader worship. But there also are contradictions baked into fascism in in those ideologies. It often overlaps with a lot of right-wing thinking, but the left can go towards fascist thinking as well. So it's just not easy to pin down. And it is a term that gets bandied around quite a lot. So I'm probably going to have the least academically informed opinion on fascism in this room because I I haven't really done a ton of reading on the subject. But I will use as a jumping off point a quote from Starship Troopers here. Woo! Yeah. The noblest fate that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between his loved home and the war's desolation. Why I read that is I agree with the quote that you read, Kristen, that the core of fascism for me is placing the interests of the nation above the interests of the individual and forcing the individual to sacrifice himself for the nation. So... And by individual, we're also talking about the individual's families, Mm. all of those communities, everything. Yes. It's the flag. It's the leader and the flag and the will of the people is inserted as as the highest good. And I can imagine something that would qualify as fascism in my mind without, for example, a singular charismatic leader. Because for me, it's all about the nation. And it can be a party. It can be a group of people. 
And that's why I don't really see this book as being fascist for a number of reasons. But one of the key reasons, I think, is their attitude towards military service in the sense that they don't conscript. There's no mandatory military service. In fact, they actively discourage people from trying to serve. And a truly fascist government wouldn't do that. They would take in all the bodies that they possibly can and force them to be cannon fodder because their lives don't matter. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think that fascism is more seeing everyone as performing some kind of role in a mm. symbiotic whole and all ends are aligned towards the health of the state and the will okay. as it's asserted. And so one of the important functions is the military. And But, uh, you know, women have their place in the household giving birth to the healthiest children, which is brings in eugenics often. Mm. My definition of fascism, there has to be the nation. Mm. And it's not just the nation state as in the lines. There has to be a very clearly identified concept of national identity. So internal versus external. There has to be the clear definition of us and our cultural practices and our historical traditions and our food and our history. And fascism has to be really focused on the past. It has to be really focused on denigrating the present. The thing that's wrong is this horrible degradation of our true national spirit. It has mm -hmm. to be this time is bad. Right. The past was better. Recovery. The time when we were truly men, when women, men were men and women were ladies. Like, and sheep were afraid. Yeah, exactly. So there has to be this clear gatekeeping of identity. And then through that, you can justify a myriad of things. It's big on the romanticization of the past. So it becomes mm. Machiavellian, as you've said before. That end can justify any means. Yeah. Mm. So... Whether or not this particular book is fascist, I don't think it's fascist because he's made a great point to make sure that the enemy is not human. Mm. So that it, it like does the same thing of like the clear other, but it's not even a human being. It's so it's alien. so alien that they don't really talk a lot about the bug society. They, they don't do something where they really like make the bugs be characters or people they're they're also like paper cutouts there's like barely a the last yeah, he, battle is fought to try and recover the queen so that they can dissect it and figure out what are we dealing with here yes there's like a shadowy enemy but there's not really a lot of emphasis on the national culture or preserving the world in fact instead this is very much a book about being a man and how you're a man is as far as i can tell according to heinlein is lots of physical suffering sacrifice sacrifice Yes, it's one of the big themes in this book is masculinity. And I would say that fascism in a way ties into traditionalist masculinity because there's a lot of this idea of the strong, virile male. Um, well, that might take us into some more gender issues if you would like to give sure. us some thoughts on that. I actually think this is really interesting. Eddie and I earlier this week were talking about a Vice article that mm -hmm. just came out. And the title of the article is Guys Are Paying $10,000 to Become Real Men at Warrior Camps. So I feel like this is somewhat topical right now, like the conversation of what it means to be a man. Do they wear cargo pants? Yeah, I, <laughs> probably with the zippers at the knees. And the uh, Hawaiian t-shirts. Yeah. Um, 
if you take out all the military aesthetics from this book, you have like 10 sentences left if you did that. <laughs> Heinlein continually is creating this idea that the way you become a man is by going through basic training. You go, you suffer physically for the sake of the weaklings back home. Their metal is not as tried or as true as yours. Like you have to go and... They perform their necessary roles, but they can't possibly comprehend the stakes involved in what we're doing. You're the only, you're the special class. You're the real class. You're the only one who really knows. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this like trial by fire shit. Right. It's a hero's journey. It's a hero's journey, which is a story that everyone likes. Sure. And in this case, it's not a journey. It's just a hero. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think, Eddie, you have a lot of feelings about this sort of masculinity. I do. You're a man, right? Last time I checked, (laughs) I do meet most of the qualifications. Although you're 10% less a man with your... uh, 70s cop stash. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am fascinated by... This idea of performative gender and the idea that you can't just be a man. And one of the main ways of performing masculinity is to go through some trial. It's frustrating in some ways because... I personally wouldn't really come out of something like that thinking that I have learned a whole lot. I mean, I might be wrong, but I've been through some physical trials in my life, most of them not by choice, and I don't think that I learned much about masculinity through those trials. I learned a lot about masculinity in other ways. Well, one thing that when you're going through a trial with other people, I think in any case, if it's a job or in a, in a military or whatever it might be, you come out with different bonds and kinship, yeah, the and, uh, brotherhood, camaraderie, those sort of things. Mm. And that's valuable. Uh, it doesn't need to be induced by murdering other people unless it's hard to conceive of a situation. I'm not a pacifist, but it should be self-defense. And Mm -hmm. of course, the book itself is premised that this is all Mm self-defense, even as the book opens with him jumping down in a mech suit, massacring people and never explains why any of that might have been necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're not us. They have to be shown examples and scared to hell. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot. The article that I referenced talks about some author and the author says men are trying to have shoulder to shoulder relationships, which is men do things together, whereas women are taught to have face to face relationships where they share their feelings together. That particular article, the man camp, they talk about people dig their own graves and they have to push their bitch selves into the grave, whatever, getting over. Yeah, but there's something really repulsive to me at the idea that the way we become valuable people is through suffering and women get this too right like i i have my tubes tied i will not be having children i've always known my whole life i don't want to have kids and when i was 23 my grandmother asked me when i was having kids and i was like i'm not and she was like why would you deny yourself your only socially useful role And my aunt later told me in life, a woman who doesn't have kids can never know what happiness feels like. And this is a constant theme, like that your version of trial by fire is killing other people. And our trial by fire is pushing a living being out of our bodies. That's that's true. Uh, Although I also hear 
being a father is, is the only way you can realize your full human potential. And if you haven't done that, you'll never know. You're not part of the great stream of life. You're denying yourself that opportunity. So there is a male equivalent of that. Yeah, in although addition it's to the probably it's less tied to the physical act of giving birth. And I also would definitely say that that's a response to feminism, actually, because that's not something men at Heinlein's time would have said. Men at that time didn't, they didn't change diapers. They didn't hold babies. And that's a whole I don't mean, um, I I just mean siring Mm, mm. in general. It has nothing to do with what role of a father I'm going to be. It's just actual child rearing. Just making making an error is something that I have a duty to do. And that goes very, very deep in history. I do agree with that mm, yeah. for sure. sure. But I think I just think this this idea that the only way you can be a valuable person is when somehow you physically prove how tough you are by either killing people or making people. Yeah. It's both they're both gross here's, and problematic. Here's the mm. role that we have for you. How mm. good are you at fulfilling it? Don't Try to go off and, st- and start your own role. Yes. Don't don't try to be a, a circle in a square world or whatever. And yeah, it's frustrating for someone like me who... You're pretty normal, I think. I, I try to be. Yeah. But it's taken a lot of work and a lot of introspection <laughs> to get to this point. Really, in terms of my masculinity, I've had to do a lot of digging and a lot of thinking and i don't feel like i'm missing out by not running 20 kilometers in the rain while chanting about how i'm killing my bitch self I well don't know. in terms of developing into our highest selves that does require sacrifice of time and labor and energy to, yes. to realize what whatever goals we have we've read a lot of books that's that's an opportunity cost you've really spent your time doing that investing in that and that's allowed you to get to your higher self and maybe but that's does it, not but does it like this is the thing a, though it doesn't thing. feel like sacrifice though because i wanted to do it right so you can get into the like conversation of aesthetics like it's a sacrifice okay. if it's what so you want to do word, but 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 it is coming at the cost of doing a lot of other things and and it is a kind of work really i mean for most people sitting down mm-hmm. to really engage in a book it, at least now nowadays you know we, our attention spans are quite a bit shorter yes so and you have mentioned to me in the past that you often read books multiple times i just recently learned that apparently milan kundera says the same thing that i say which is i don't actually feel like i've read a book until i've read it three times so if it's something that's actually like serious i feel like i need to read it three times like this was my second time reading starship troopers okay i, I had a quote here that ties into some of this um, fitting in and roles mm. and it's after he's gone through boot camp he gets released he gets more time off right okay he says I had no more than stepped out of the shuttle my first pass then I realized in part that I had changed Johnny didn't fit in any longer civilian life I mean it all seemed amazingly complex and unbelievably untidy mm. 
And mm. so I think there's this desire to simplify things, reduce them, neaten yeah. them. And you definitely see that reduction in things that go into more fascist societies. Yes. There are correct answers and their correct roles. A place for everything and everything in its place. Yeah, and that's, and that's Confucianism in a big way. Mm. And, and he also talks about the ideal gentleman in the book. Mm. And if you've read Confucius, you, the gentleman is, is the, the huge thing there. A lot of this book reminded me of this, and I'm sure that Heinlein had read The Lays of Ancient Rome. I can't remember the, the author's name, but it's this epic series of poems was published somewhere in the 1800s. And the most famous quote from it is, How can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his father's and the temples of his gods. That is the apex of morality. Yes. Of an ethical duty to one's other. As Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. Yes. If I was going to sum up my experience with Heinlein, as his many books that I have read, I can only hate read him. The only thing I can do is read him specifically to latch onto his ideas and then rant about how much I hate them. Mm -hmm. At every level, from the aesthetic level to the deeper meaning. Like, it's just everything this man stands for I'm opposed to. Part of his mythology or part of his, like, belief system is that when women let go of their social conventions. They won't need that force anymore. They'll just, you know, open your mind, open your legs. And so I think that for it's me... It's quite objectifying, isn't it? Heinlein has this idea, which a lot of mainstream feminists have, which is that liberation means being a sexual being and that being a sexual being means being a person who likes to have a lot of sex. It means being fucking on the first date. It means being good at giving head it means like being connected to your body but it doesn't actually mean that it means being a good sexual object uh whatever it is that he wants you to do mm -hmm. we all have our clear roles that are based on gender divisions and even when women are like liberated in his books they're not when he uses words like citizenship and voting or talks about women in the military or whatever, if it doesn't make you fundamentally rethink your own perspective on those things you're reading his books wrong if he wants to make the case that a citizen is someone who's willing to put their life on the line for something, what does that make you think of citizens? What does that make you think of voting? Because he actually has a fairly liberal idea, right? As opposed to that citizenship is just granted by birth. In terms of reading a shitty book, your frustrations with it, it reminds me of watching a really bad movie and understanding what makes a good movie. Kind of seeing, oh, wow, now I'm a film student because I have to think about why is this movie so crappy? What could have made it better? Mm. And I think that might be a good segue into a really fantastic film called Starship Troopers. This is a rare case of the movie being so much better than the book. Which we yeah. watched recently together. Yeah, yeah. So a bit of background on the movie. It was directed by Paul Verhoeven or as you would say it, Verhoeven, the Dutch director behind films like Total Recall and Robocop. So he's no stranger to using sci-fi as an analogy and as a metaphor. He started reading Starship Troopers and got two chapters in, got bored. <laughs> it's really boring. Stopped stopped reading. So I have some quotes here about the film, because what's interesting about the film for me is that it was completely misunderstood in its time. What Verhoeven did was he 
he tried to satirize fascism. So during the filming, one of the actors, Michael Ironside, asked Verhoeven, why are you doing a right-wing fascist movie? And Verhoeven said, if I tell the world that a right-wing fascist way of doing things doesn't work, no one will listen to me. So I'm going to make a perfect fascist world. Everyone is beautiful, everything is shiny, everything has big guns and fancy ships, but it's only good for killing fucking bugs. And this is something we notice, right? Every single person in the movie is gorgeous. Everybody is like a comic book character. Right. And it's deliberate. It's he, I think They're he cast it that way specifically. Yeah, and, and the movie brings in a romantic arc that's not in the book at all. Yes. Mm -hmm. Two, actually. There's like a slight love triangle, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Paul Verhoeven says in another article he wrote, Mark Wahlberg and Matt Damon auditioned, but I was looking for the prototype of blonde, white, and arrogant. And Casper Van Dien, who was cast in the lead role, was so close to the images I remembered from Leni Riefenstahl's films. I borrowed from Triumph of the Will in the parody propaganda reel that opens the film too. I was using Riefenstahl to point out, or so I thought, that these heroes and heroines were straight out of Nazi propaganda. No one saw it at the time. I don't know whether or not the actors realized. We never discussed it. I thought Neil Patrick Harris arriving on the set in an SS uniform might clear it up. That fucking trench coat. Mm. is seriously like the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just so well, and then you, over the top. And then throughout the movie, you have all these uh, little info infomercial info things. Yeah. And it's like, here, check out the best army in the world and blah, blah, blah. We're fighting and it's doing all this, showing all these horrible things. And like, uh, what yeah, the yeah. hell is going on? And it, on the bottom, it's like, would you like to know more? And then yeah. someone's clicking. Yes, tell me more. <laughs> yes. I mean, you've got, you've got footage of, of soldiers giving guns to children and letting them play with it yeah and yeah, yeah like it's it's so absurd it's so over the top but yep. nobody saw it at the time when the film came out um roger ebert called it the most violent kiddie movie ever made and oh. gave it two stars out of five it, it, can we mention the shower scene oh <laughs> the shower scene is it's one of the most famous scenes in the film in this film, the military is co-ed. In this scene, you've got all these characters naked in the shower discussing why they joined up. But the actors only agreed to do this co-ed naked scene if Paul Verhoeven agreed to direct it naked, which he absolutely agreed to. He didn't see a problem with this because <laughs> he's Dutch. Yeah. So he has completely different views of nudity and sexuality right than uh, you know conservative americans do right yeah i think that might bring us to the end of our discussion here what's yes. uh what's next on our beautiful up, journey up next success? we are going to be talking about that time that salman rushdie got cancelled for some spicy tweets i'm gonna put a fatwa on your ass <laughs> Yeah, we've got a we've got a great guest coming up next time. Um, we'd like to give a big thank you to Carmen who joined us and took her mm. time to painstakingly relive the <laughs> abundant nonsense that she's encountered in this book. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you for yeah tolerating my opinionated self. <laughs> we we hope to bring you back at some point if 
you know, after we've gone through a few more of these. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I can't really think of anything else to add uh, except to reiterate the line that, that you've said a few times now. Open your mind, open your legs. <laughs> and go shower with people of the opposite sex. Go shower with a Dutch person. I mean, we are in Korea. The Jim Jilbongs are co-ed sometimes. Not naked co-ed, but you know, we could work on it. We could work on that. We Let's could get work to work on, on it. On that. <laughs>